0: Hello and welcome to MacroBytes, the economics and politics podcast from Aberdeen, hosted by me, Paul Diggle, and my colleague, Luke Bartholomew, and we're both economists in the Research Institute here at Aberdeen. So we're back with Professor Helen Thompson, author of Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century. Last week, we talked about energy markets and how they drive global geopolitics. And today, we're going to focus on the second big theme from Helen's book, which is the role of monetary policy. One of the points you make in the book is that the, the successes of monetary policy in taming inflation um, in through the 80s and 90s is as much to do with low energy prices, the fallout of the 70s um, shocks and the increase in supply that brought online, the China shock, which essentially exported low inflation to, to the rest of the world, is as much to do with those drivers as it is to do with Independent technocratic central banks having solved inflation. But we're now in a period of very volatile energy markets, a reverse globalization shock of sorts. Um, Even last week at at the ECB Cintra conference, Christine Lagarde was declaring the end of the era of low inflation. Um, So, I mean, the great moderation died with the financial crisis, but it is the post financial crisis pre-pandemic new normal this era of low rates low inflation low growth is that also confined to the history books with the the, the shocks we've seen over the past couple of years
1: my guess is yes that it is um, I think that um, if you look at the the 2010s so once the economic recoveries in Western economies really got going uh, and as we know, there were never spectacular economic <laughs> recoveries from 2008. Um, oil prices, you know, relatively quickly went above $100 a barrel and they stayed there for about three and a bit years. I'm um, so from 2010, well, sorry, 2011 through to the middle of 2014. Um, and then the price came like tumbling down. And that was both a product of, Um, shale supply, the shale boom, shale oil boom really taking off and then the way in which the Saudis reacted to the problems that the American shale oil boom caused them. So there's a period really from, certainly from the latter part of 2014 through to early 2016 where oil prices are very low, very low. Um, And then when the Saudis realise they can't bankrupt the the US shale sector and they have to basically make a move towards Putin that creates OPEC um, plus. And they put a floor under prices that lasts until that Saudi-Russian relationship breaks down in the first month or so of the pandemic. And you know, paradoxically in some sense it was Trump that put it back to to together um, again. Um, I think what's striking is that even though in that latter part of the 2010s before the mm. pandemic, so particularly in 2019, oil crisis prices had crept back up, not to levels that were intolerable for Western economies, um, but there was significant slowdown in 2019 you know, in the world economy. And there was a significant issue with the supply of oil, Or at least a partially significant issue in relation to the supply of oil in relation to the demand for oil in 2019. Now, the question then I think for now would be not only is there anything like the big expansion that shale oil did in the 2010s in the US that can come again. Well, if you look at the data, it's only really the Permian Basin that looks like it's still got lots of growth in it of the existing fields. Some of them are clearly in um, decline. That doesn't mean that a shale oil boom couldn't happen somewhere else. But if you said, okay, where's the most promising place just geologically where it might happen, it's probably Russia. Um, And Russia, as we know, then has got a capital and technology um, problem because of the, um, the sanctions. So there's nothing, I think, that's obvious that can do what the American shale oil um, boom um, did in the in the um, in the two, in the second half of the 2010s. At the same time, though, as we know from the past you know, pre-shale, um, you have high oil prices for long enough, and you will destroy demand. Um, actually, the other thing I should have put in though in terms of the um, the prospects for inflation would be gas prices which aren't so consequential in terms of like what happened um, previously um, but now I think are more so um, and the fact that actually there's a, been a shock or there's about to be a shock from Germany in terms of demand for liquid natural gas is a Structural factor that is going to keep the liquid natural gas prices high, unless something radically changes.
2: So you talked there, I guess, of one of the conceits of the central banking era that central banks are able to control inflation largely regardless of where energy prices are going. And as you say, the energy price is a much bigger part of the story. But another big conceit of the central banking infrastructure is this idea that there's lots of independent central banks who are all setting monetary policy for their own domestic economy right whereas what we really have is a system of core and periphery where the fed sits as hegemon and effectively sets monetary policy for a large part of the world yet it's democratically accountable to only one part of the world and you Adam Tombs and others have talked about you know in moments of crises the sort of um political economic consequence of this the fed swap lines needing to be rolled out and the profound political choices that are involved in doing that but it sort of strikes me that that's just crisis era stuff we're talking about there but it just on an ongoing day-to-day basis it's the fed that gets to set monetary policy for the world crisis or not and the fed is only accountable to the u.s government at all times uh, and this seems particularly pressing right now in the context of of this interest rate hiking cycle. So I'm wondering sort of what democratic and economic vulnerabilities do you think lie in what seems to me this sort of deep contradiction in the in the sort of the democratic accountability of the way central banking is set up?
1: Yeah, well, obviously if you go back to the, the 1920s um, and particularly actually Britain's predicament in the, the 1920s, this problem is is pretty crucial um to to what happens uh, including in the end I would say Britain's exit from the the gold standard in in 1931 um, uh, so you have British politicians who think of themselves as accountable to British voters and want to win elections and they would like interest rates to be significantly lower, but really the Bank of England has to follow um, what the Federal Reserve um, was um, doing, and if you read some of the the memos that Winston Churchill wrote when he was Chancellor, um, then they're full of this sort of really dark night of the soul stuff about this um, problem of the relationship between um, democratic politics and the subordination of Britain monetarily um, to the to the the Federal um, Reserve. And I think if you if you um, skip on to the 1980s, you can see a lot of the frustration in France um, during um, President um, Mitterrand's um, presidency that actually provides the context, provided the context for the French push for monetary union within the the, the European Community um, as it then was, coming out of much the same problem, except for the fact that the French, by that point, had got two central banks that were. Containing what they could do, not just the, the Federal Reserve in the first half of the 80s, but the Bundesbank in the in the second half of the 1980s. Um, um, and I think that we're going to see as the problem of how do individual central banks, that are not the United States, not, not the Federal Reserve, deal with the inflation um, problem. Um, it is going to get pretty difficult if the Federal Reserve want to do something that is quite an outlier from what others would do. Now, having said that, um, I mean, the outlier, I think at the moment, just in terms of the major central banks, in terms of what they want to do is the is the Bank of Japan, um, rather in, in being so opposed to any uh, tightening at all, being so reluctant to engage in any um, tightening uh, at all. I would say though as well, Luke, that it isn't really just a question of the democratic problem, it's it's a problem for China uh, as well. Uh, And you could see that already in the middle of the 2010s, the 2015-16 Chinese financial crisis, which was a big, big blow um, for um, the Chinese um, leadership. If you look at what the run-up to that was, it was the knowledge that by the end of 2015, that Janet Yellen's Federal Reserve, led Federal Reserve was going to just increase interest rates by 0.25%. Um, uh, and it called caused carnage for um, China in terms of um, capital um, flows in the Chinese um, share um, markets. So I think it, it's not only uh, for Western democracies, What do you do when your central bank is following the world's leading central bank? It's also uh, a sovereignty question, or it can be perceived as a, it will be perceived as a, uh, as a sovereignty um, question. Um, And then, you know, the kind of financial crisis that China had in 2015, 16 had all kinds of like, knock-on consequences. And if you wanted to go back a bit further than that, a country that's obviously was significantly more vulnerable than China where the consequences were geopolitical was Ukraine, you know, and the problems that Ukraine um, financially had and its currency um, had um, when um, Bernanke, after Bernanke had said that, that the Fed was going to stop, was going to start tapering um, purchases. And it was because Ukraine didn't get any meaningful financial support in dealing with that crisis from Either the U.S. or from the European Central, uh, or from the ECB or the um, the Federal um, Reserve, that um, Yanukovych turned to um, Putin and set in motion the the set of events that led to his removal from power and you know, the Crimean, the annexation of Crimea. So there's pretty big geopolitical stakes for some countries too, in terms of. Um, the consequences of what the Fed decides to do.
2: And then just in terms of the way democratic governments interact with their own domestic central banks, uh, I guess sort of the tech, you know, well, putting these sort of questions of inflation control and demand management, economic management in the hands of technocrats that seem to work or be politically possible in a world of low inflation, steady-ish growth. Now, that inflation is much higher and we well know inflation is a deeply political question. Does that kind of sense of independence of central banks and democratic governments sort of washing their hands of it almost and saying, you know, not our problem it's up to these guys to fix? I mean, is that is that sustainable? Do, do, are there questions about how long independent central banks can continue to exist in that sort of environment?
1: I think that's a really interesting um, question because I think it's very difficult to know what the answer is, and that's what makes it, that's what makes it interesting. Um, I think if you go back to the the 2016 US election uh, and think about um, Trump and Bernie Sanders as insurgent candidates for their party's nominations, albeit very different kinds of ultimately of insurgent um, candidates, there were a number of issues in which they really made common cause, and one of them was attacking the Fed, in these kind of terms, sort of saying, "Look, it presents itself as technocratic." That's not—it's not the words that Trump used, but but really, it's making political decisions um, all the time. And and um, you know, there are people who are winning from this uh, in finance, and there are people who are losing um, from um, this. If you look at the the left, more generally, or the radical left, there's obviously been quite a lot of interest since 2008 in in modern monetary theory in this idea that actually you you can do the technocratic thing if quantitative easing is a sort of technocratic thing but you use it for a different purpose i mean i think there's quite a bit of thinking on that that's quite muddled but if you just treat it as a political phenomenon what i see less of is any clear evidence that anyone's really saying uh, any significant political constituency is really saying actually Politicians need to be back in charge of, of central um, banks, even in the Eurozone, I would say, where you could see it in things that French prime ministers and French finance ministers would say in the first, you know, in the year, in the 2000s leading up to 2008, um, you know, um, and you could actually see it in some of the things that Berlusconi said as well, in actually 2008, the Spanish... Um, finance and minister and was saying that these are political decisions they've got to have some political so got to be some political influence over them. I don't really see that. I think that that was a kind of like a constant theme in French policy. Um really going back to the latter years of Bretton Woods, certainly by the point in, in which uh, the Deutsche Mark was the strongest currency um in um Europe. This idea of there being political control over monetary policy is a pretty persistent French demand. And actually, they hoped, the French who, ministers who were pushing monetary union hoped that that would be the end result of it. Obviously, it was never going to be because the Germans weren't going to give up the Deutsche Mark on those terms. But I don't really see that coming out of France. Now, I mean, maybe it is and I'm missing it, but I think you see much more the idea um, The critique of the euro, if there is one still, of being that it needs to be debt sharing and or that it needs to be more of an alternative to the dollar rather than it being... So that that it needs to be a geopolitical currency rather than having a politicised monetary policy. Now, that that may be because the European Central Bank has been quite wary so far about the way that it's dealt with inflationary pressure and that if there's a sharp... Turn towards monetary tightening, we might. It's possible, I guess, that that French narrative will return. Um, But I think that in France, at least, I think something has changed, or at least it's possible that it's changed.
0: I mean, the the macro management change that seemed to be underway, at least pre pandemic, was a tentative resurgent fiscal activism, Mm -hmm. or at least a consensus building among economists that in an era of low rates, debt overhangs seemed to to matter less and there was more scope for fiscal policy. Macro management didn't need to be completely handed over to, to monetary policymakers. And it strikes me that actually the change that will come after this experience isn't a threat to the independence of central banks, but rather a threat to that emerging fiscal activism because it'll seem like it was the Biden stimulus what did it in terms of the, the breakout of inflation. Uh, I mean, is, is that the way that the, the monetary fiscal architecture changes? Actually, rightly or wrongly, high inflation will be pinned on too much fiscal policy and then we get much less use of that in the future.
1: I think that, that we can already see that there's a, a contest going on, a narrative contest going on about who to blame for this inflation um, and I think if you if you just take the United States, you've got a narrative that comes out of the right that's about fiscal stimulus. Uh, um, Biden sending, you know, like check, not just actually you know, Biden, because obviously it began during um, Trump. Um, essentially, the pandemic stimulus is to blame, um, and then from the administration itself, it's Putin's to blame. It's it's about energy, but it's not about energy. Because of energy's own dynamics, it's because Putin's war is to um, blame. It seems to me that neither of those narratives are very, um, very convincing, yeah. um, On aside from anything else, because it is about energy, but the energy inflation was already you know, there and being talked about um, last second half of last year. And indeed, Biden was already showing he was very worried about it because he was asking OPEC+, Plus. Um, You know, to do something about getting oil prices um, back down, again, pretty publicly from last August, as I um, recall. I think if we turn to Europe, the the fiscal stimulus argument doesn't really work. I mean, even in I mean, I'm not particularly convinced by it in the US case, but at least you could say it's sort of a marginal fact. It's not the underlying issue, but it happened. Um, whereas I think it's pretty difficult for anybody to turn around and say, OK, it was the um, the EU's recovery fund and debt sharing that's to blame um, for this. I mean, that seems to be that would be an absurd argument, I think, to even try to, 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 to make. And I don't hear anybody um, trying to make that um, in uh, a Eurozone um, country. So then the question is, well, What kind of narrative about energy is going to stick uh, and how can it stick when we're talking about monetary policy itself, when, as we know, really the only tool that central bankers have for dealing with energy inflation is to steer the economy towards slower growth, if not recession, essentially to act as the agent of demand destruction. In order to get energy prices um, back down um, again. Now, obviously, there is a potential secondary question about whether wage inflation then becomes a problem in response to energy, you know, like prices. Whether we see, like, maybe we beginning to see in Britain, you know, like unions pushing for um, higher wages in response to um, energy, um, rising energy and food um, prices. But I still think that on that point, this is where what central banks did last time did have consequences, because it definitely depressed the political power of organised labour and their ability to demand um, compensatory wage increases in response to um, energy inflation. Now, you might argue that once or someone could argue that there's something about the pandemic that is strengthening the bargaining power of labour, not because anything changed about the long politics of that, just because of the shortages of labour in certain sectors of the economy and the difficulty of hiring people to do um, jobs. Um, but I still think that the the core of the end, sorry, the core of the inflation problem that central banks will be grappling with will be the energy core, to the energy and food core
0: to it. Well, on the topic of central bank. Demand destruction then. Um, mm-hmm. The topic on the question on everyone's lips is how does this rate hiking cycle end? And in the book, you talk about several central bank hiking cycles into high energy price inflation, which in the end ended up in a recession. The Fed in 2008, not stimulating enough, um, the eurozone in 2007 and 2011, sorry, under the trichet hiking into energy price strength, but also um, a burgeoning Eurozone crisis and recession at the time. And today, of course, we're experiencing very front-loaded rate hikes during an energy price shock, even as the global data flow is weakening and some some nowcasts already have us in contraction. So with the caveat that you're a political economy historian not a not a jobbing economist are uh, does this end in recession
1: I think so um, I think so yes I mean I think the dating is already heading in that um, direction I think if you look historically that energy shocks of the magnitude that this one is and and, and I put it starting as last year rather than starting with the the war then the They've all had a recession. Those kind of energy shocks have all had a recession that's followed um, them. You could put in a carrier and say, "Well, it's different this time because what had come before had got a pandemic and a shutdown of significant parts of the world economy um, before it." I think that uh, and that that kind of means that the pattern isn't quite the same. Nonetheless, um, I think that. Energy is so pervasive and systemic in its consequences, particularly the relationship between energy prices and food um, prices, that it's quite hard to see uh, how a recession is avoided.
0: Professor Helen Thompson, that was a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for joining us on Macrobytes. A reminder that Helen's book is Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century. It dives into, into all the issues we've discussed today and indeed many more we thoroughly recommend it. And if you are enjoying Macrobytes from Aberdeen, please give the podcast a like or subscribe on your podcast platform. But otherwise, goodbye and good luck out there.
2: This podcast is provided for
1: general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for informational purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen.